0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, the Conclusion, Part 1. Got a Bible with you. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 12. We're working our way through the Old Testament and we've been stuck in Daniel in a good way, I hope. I hope you've enjoyed Daniel. Daniel is a very rich book. I love Daniel, maybe too much. Uh, Daniel uh, is kind of hard to let go of because it brings up so many topics. There's so many things you can get into of course, the whole end times stuff is, is uh, almost like a bottomless well you can draw from. Uh, we've talked about the Antichrist. We've talked about the end times and the process of that. can't help but do that. We've seen angels, demons, this, this whole angelic conflict and how important it is for us to understand that and what the Bible has to say about these things. Doing my best uh, by God's grace to support it all with Scripture. Again, we shouldn't come together because we're interested in what I think. Surely you're not doing that. And I'm not any more interested in what you think either. I hope you know that. Because it's not your thinking or my thinking that matters. It's what God thinks. And it's only as we come together and look and see what God has to say, and it changes the way we think, that's going to make the difference. God is going to make a difference through his word, his inspired word. And so it's just uh, my job is to bring that to light. And give as much comments as I can, but nonetheless, uh, just let it say what it says. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 12 in a bit. I want to start with uh, just a thought here. wonder if any of you have a relationship like my wife and I have, which is, by the way, a wonderful relationship. We've been married 29 years, and she's not able to be here. You heard the whole issue of her eye, I appreciate you praying, and all those who have cooked for you. And um, there still hasn't happened steak and lobster yet, but I'm holding out for that. <laughs> And someone said, "How you Pastor Bill, you must be really suffering i'm I'm not suffering at all. I got to lay out my own clothes now, but that's what's I mean you know I can do that for the interim. you know I can let her off for that so it, it, I wonder if any of you have a relationship with your wife or husband or anybody in your uh, family or whatever friends have this similar relationship we We wake up, we are never on the same page. we are because we're both believers, we both love the Lord, we both want to serve the Lord we want to honor God with our lives. But, but I, my, we're in the same book, but I'm like in the front of the book and then she's in the back of the book every single day. And, uh, for instance, here's a, here's a typical conversation in our house. I guarantee you any given week, she walks in and says something like this. Well, you know, uh, that we talked about, they said that it was a good idea. And so, um, they're going to need you to call them. So I need you to get to that whenever you get a chance. <laughs> and I'm sitting in my, I'm sitting in my recliner thinking, yes. what is she talking about? And I'm really trying, y'all. I'm really, I'm really not trying to be a, a rebel or just say, you know, unless she comes down to my level, unless she prefaces it with something that I can understand where she's coming from, that I'm not going to listen to what she's I'm not like that. I don't want to be like that. I mean, I want to be a good husband, and I have an, a wonderful wife, and so I want to treat her well. But I'm truly just struggling trying to figure out what she's saying. I mean, I just have no idea whatsoever. And so she can see, you know, 29 years of marriage, she can see this glaze over my face. Of, uh, he doesn't know what I'm talking about. She says, don't you remember what we were talking about? I'll say, no. Well, what part don't you remember? <laughs> N- none of it. <laughs> and so, so she said, well, what part do you need me to start with? All of it. Start with, start with the first word, the or and or whatever the first word was. Start explaining yourself. And then the conversation will go from there to this. It'll say, well, don't you remember we had this conversation 43 days ago about such and such and such and such. such such?" You know, I'm sure that we did. She's not a liar. I would know by now, but 43 days I erase. My brain erases all my memory. When I go to bed at night, is there any other man that's like me? I just erase all my memory because I don't have enough space for the important things of the next day. And when I wake up and I pray the prayer of God to order my steps, it's because I've got a fresh start and I don't have to add anything to it because it's all fresh in there. And my wife can accumulate all these 43 days of conversations and I just can't do it. Sort of, sort of reminds me if we pick it up where we are in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, if all you did was pick up the Bible and start reading in Daniel 12, verse 1 and had none of the preface of what's going on here, you'd be like, oh, well, wait a minute. Look at what it says. Now, at that time, Michael... Well, what time and who is Michael? And the great prince who stands guard of the sons of your people, don't you know, for crying out loud? Well, no, I don't know. And uh, he will arise, arise to do what? Well, there will be a time of distress, it says, such as never has occurred since there was a, a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, speaking Daniel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Where do I start with that, right? Well, I'll start at the beginning, and that's what we're going to do. What does this mean, and where does what is this... At this time, well, we, like I said, this is not a good idea. It's never a good idea to open your Bible, just put your finger down and just read something and try to draw a conclusion unless you're really versed in where you are. uh, A lot of people try to prophesy by putting their finger down on the Bible. The Bible's not made to do that. The Bible's meant to be taken as a whole, and so you need to be in some kind of Bible study, some kind of process with other people ongoing in, a, in your personal life and in your collective life as a church. so important to be in small group Bible study. So, of course, attend church. There's just so much that can get accomplished here. What, I have 30 minutes? I've been taking like 45 minutes. I apologize. It's going to be about the same today, so you might as well just sink in. If you're going to sleep, go ahead, because it's just going to be that way. There's only so much that we can get done on a Sunday morning when we sit together and I preach to you because there's no chance for answering questions You raise your hand I'm not going to answer you because I got I got a program up here. I've been praying about all week We can talk about it later But right now I got to get through this program And so there's just so much that of learning that can be done I'm headed down a certain path and if you get lost in that path, I can't wait for you so that that that's why this cannot be your only thing you're not having personal Bible study and collective Bible study in a small group setting, and and listening to other good stuff online. I would say underline good stuff. Make sure it's good stuff. If you're not sure who good stuff is, then make a list of what you're listening to and email me, and I will mark out the ones that I don't think you should listen to. Again, uh, that's my opinion, and you need to make your own conclusions. But, but nonetheless, so, so we have to understand what it all says. And so part of what's understanding here in Daniel 12 is we have to know what's coming before this. What's come before this is this is the end of the final vision of Daniel that he records. He has four different visions. And the last one begins in chapter 10. And that's where we took the hiatus talking about these demons and angels and this angelic conflict that happens. The whole chapter 10 basically is an introduction to the vision. Whole chapter 10 is just simply God trying to get the angel to Daniel to give him a message. And if you remember what happens there, the angel Gabriel's on his way, gets hung up by the prince of Persia. It says there we find out it's not a physical prince, it's a spiritual, this demon. Holds up in the Huskow for 21 straight days this angel Gabriel, and it's not until Michael, that's the name you see here in verse 1, goes and rescues this, this other angel, gets him out. And Michael doesn't deliver the message. He sends, allows Gabriel to continue to go on. He finally brings the message to Daniel. And as we begin in chapter 11 and chapter 12, is this, Daniel, is this angel revealing these things that Daniel has been praying about and asking God about, or in fact, I would say way beyond what Daniel's been asking about and praying about. And so they spend a whole chapter trying to get the message to him. And then chapters 11 and 12 are the message themselves. And it basically is a message of hundreds of years, namely about 250 or 300 years of oppression, that the Jews are going to experience. And the details of chapter 11, which, by the way, I would commend to you read this week sometimes, talk about history, uh, well-detailed history that Daniel writes before it ever happens. That's why we call it prophecy and not history. But it's written as if Daniel had lived through it and was looking back. And many scholars, quote, unquote, I would put in a little S without an underline, scholars have claimed that Daniel must have written after the fact. There's no, one, someone, there's no way someone could write about Something that hasn't happened yet and be this accurate and I would totally agree with them unless Unless God inspired him Unless God told him see that's the thing. That's the bridge. They don't want to cross the problem about It is you don't hear any more of these arguments that Daniel must have written after the fact because guys the evidence is just too prolific they are just too prolific. Now the same old guys are scratching their head and they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe God. They have no idea how Daniel did it, but no one's arguing with the fact that Daniel wrote beforehand. He wrote very detailed information, even about Cleopatra. I mean, all that's in chapter 11. How could he possibly know that hundreds of years in advance? Only God. So that's part of why Daniel has been this controversial book for so long. Chapter 11, chapter chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter 2, all these chapters in Daniel which, which seem to conflict with how things normally go, which is I don't tell you about it until after it happens. Well, Daniel didn't do that. He did it before it happened. So anyway, right before he says all that he says, or right before he says what he says here beginning in chapter 12, he fast forwards. We have chapter 11, which is basically 300 years of Israel's oppression under the Greeks. And at the end of that, he brings up this king that doesn't fit with the Greeks at all. and In fact, it's a fast forward all the way through past our time to the very end times of this guy who gets a ton of airplay in Daniel, a guy that we would otherwise call the Antichrist. And he fast forwards to him down in verse 36 of chapter 11 and following. But anyway, so this... Fast forward brings us all the way to where we are here in Daniel chapter 1, uh, Jan- Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse 1. This fast forward of this guy is going to arise and bring great oppression upon Israel greater than any of the times of the Greeks, greater than any other time, including the time of Hitler and, and the Holocaust of, of Eastern Europe that, that the world has ever seen. Notice what it says there at the end of chapter, of chapter 12, verse 1. There will, there will be. It says a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Mark it carefully, because this is a date and time, a time in future history, if you will, that God continually says the same thing. It's not going to be like anything else. No one has ever seen of it. No one's ever heard of it. It's not close to anything. It's going to be beyond your imagination. Uh, It's going to be there's not going to be anything that has ever happened before there's ever been a nation until that time It says it consistently in the scriptures. It's a repeated theme both Old and New Testament. Look at what Jesus says Matthew 24 speaking at the same time Nation will rise against nation Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Does that sound familiar? Sound familiar in the current context you're living in? So that's where you are today. Where are we? Notice what Jesus calls them? These are the beginnings of birth pains. You're just, anybody here had a baby before? I know I haven't. I was told it's not that big a deal. It's like pulling teeth. You know, it's like one tooth once it's done. Right. I was fishing when mine were born and I got there. My wife was fine. The kids were fine. I can't see a problem. Hey, talk. He talks bigs when his wife's not here. Just so you know. It's just the beginning of birth pains. What is that? Because I, I, she and I went to the, you know, when our, our son was born, before he was born, she was big pregnant. He weighed 9 pounds, 12 ounces. He was a giant kid. My wife's not a big lady at all. And we went, but we had no idea how big this child was going to be. The doctor had no big, no idea how big it was going to be. We went to the Lamaze classes, you know, where they teach you all this breathing and how it's going to be. And, of course, they can't tell you. They can say, how, how bad does it hurt? Well, it hurts bad. What does that mean? I don't know. Then you get in there, start having labor pains, and uh, the first several are kind of like, "Ah, no big deal, right? We got this." If this is all that it is, of course, that's not all that it is, because they start getting longer, they start getting closer together, the intensity starts getting greater, and of course, you may think. In other words, hear what Jesus says. Do you think things are bad today? They're not. This is a birth process. It doesn't get better. It doesn't hurt less. It doesn't last shorter periods of time. It's going to be longer. It's going to be closer together. It's going to be more intense. That's the earthquakes, all the various uh, things that take place there. All these are just simply birth pains, it says. So, he says, when you see standing in the holy place. Now, this is a Jew. Jesus was a Jew, wasn't he? Died a Jew, resurrected a Jew. Today, there's a Jew sitting on the throne of God. Everybody clear with that one? Got that one? Because That's what the Bible teaches. There's a Jew on the throne of God today. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. So, Jesus believed in Daniel? Yes. There's none of the reasons why we know the New Testament when it was written. And Jesus refers to Daniel being prior to that. And again, multiple levels of evidence that says Daniel was written beforehand. Jesus refers to Daniel. He refers to Daniel chapter 9. We've already looked at that. This abomination requires there to be a temple. It had to be a temple to be a holy place. There has to be a holy place for there to be an abomination set up, and that's, of course, the Antichrist setting up his idol to be worshipped himself, being worshipped as God. He says, when you see this, there will be a great tribulation, fast-forwarding there in the verses, a great tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never will be equaled again. It says the same thing Daniel says. Interesting. Again, says it in Jeremiah, very similar. Jeremiah chapter 35 through 7. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and seek. Can a man bear children? Praise God, he cannot. <laughs> <laughs> then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, like giving birth? Every face turned deathly. So notice the same uh, uh, symbols here. Uh, labor pains, right? They go from bad to worse to God save us, you know, kind of thing. Well, that's what's happening here. It says, why do I see this process taking place? And every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. Notice what he says. There is none like it. Over and over and over again, you hear in the scriptures, there is nothing. What's coming is unlike anything that has ever happened before. You think it's been bad? You think it's bad right now? You got another thing coming to be sure. It is the time notice of Jacob's trouble. So, one more title we could give to this section of time that the Bible has so much to say about. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved out of it. Same thing Daniel says here. So when it says here at that time, what is he saying? He's saying this, this time period called Jacob's trouble. It's called in Daniel, the 70th week of Daniel. It's called the time of tribulation, multiple places, old and new Testament in the book of revelation. It's called the great tribulation. Great. Why? Because it's better and worse or worse than anything that has ever been. There's nothing like it. It is the time when this great global leader that we know of as the Antichrist who gets, as I said, so much airtime in the book of Daniel, he's going to inaugurate the worst persecution of the Jews that has ever been, that's beating even Hitler, unlike anything they've ever seen, the worst devastations that, that the world has ever seen. It says when he starts his campaign, which by the way the Bible says clearly only lasts seven years, that to begin the seven years a quarter of the world's population is going to die. And then not too lot farther into the seven years, another third is going to die of the remainder. So if we do the math together, if we do one quarter of the world's population, and then we have a remainder of whatever's left, three quarters, and we take a third of that, if you do the math, you find out that's exactly one half. So within seven years, some, sometime within that period, one half of the world's population, no more. That's what the Bible predicts. Now, is that better or worse than anything you've ever heard? I'm thinking that's way worse. Jesus describes it this way. He says there will be two plowing in the field. One will be taken. The other will be left. So if I had two and I'm down to one, that's exactly a half, isn't it? Two will be in bed together. One will be taken. The other left. We've heard it interpreted as with regards to the rapture and has nothing to do with the rapture. Read the context. Has everything to do with judgment. Half the population gone. So we have, what, 7 billion? So 3.5 billion die on the planet in less than seven years. What will that be like? Like I said, as Jesus says here, as Daniel says, as Jeremiah says, unlike any other time that we have ever seen, And it's called specifically Jacob's trouble and it's anyway all that together ending in this massive warfare that we know as the battle of Armageddon is what is being referred to here in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 is at that time. At what time? At that time. At that time and if you're there for that time well well, first of all let me just say shame on you if you are. But let me let me just say you won't have to have anybody tell you it's going to be that time. At that time he says to Daniel and through him to the nation of Israel. At that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard of the sons of your people, will arise. Who is this? Michael, the great prince. Well, we've been introduced to him. We've heard at least earlier in Daniel that this is some kind of angel, this, this Michael, this defender of Israel. At that time, he will arise. It tells us in Jude chapter 9, or chapter 9? Jude verse 9. Even the archangel, this is the only place he's called that in the Bible, by the way. We know him as Archangel Michael, Right? But he's called the archangel when he, it says, was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. So he does that? Apparently so. Even when the archangel, what does arch mean? It means to be first, or it means to be chief. It's more of a title in the effect of commander or general. So when it says that Michael, the archangel, it says here in, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, that Michael will arise. I'm assuming, and it's just an assumption... That it's not just him. Because when I say, for instance, that we invaded Iraq and General Schwarzkopf attacked uh, Iraq and we won. Does that mean that General Schwarzkopf actually was the guy out there on the fields? No, it was all of our guys. He was the general. He was the commander. And all those underneath his command were the ones that did the the invasion. Is that not right? I read this the same way when it says Michael arises. I'm reading not just Michael. But all the angels underneath him, myriads, it says, will stand on that day to, to uh, fight on behalf of Israel. That's the way I understand it. You may disagree with it, and I would have to say you've got a right to feel however you want to. Uh, but nonetheless, let me just ask you this. So, so Michael, it says here, is the defender of Israel, He's not the defender of the Americans. So I know in some places we're taught the, the patron Saint Michael that guards those who trust in him. First of all, why would you ever think that Michael... You should put your place your faith in michael where does it ever say in the bible that you should trust an angel where does it ever say in the bible that you should pray to an angel so if you're doing that stop it like right now because i promise you if you have an angel wanting you to pray to him it's not going to be a good angel and it won't be michael he would love to fool you and love to lie to you but there's bad angels out there they would love for you to pray to them and trust them and michael certainly is not going to be a part of that but but again this, this Michael, who's the defender of Israel, that's the, his only assignment, He's and I, as, as far as I can tell. So he's not helping us over here in America. He's not helping them over there in Mexico. His job is to defend Israel, and that's all that he does. He doesn't do anything else. So let me just ask for just a second, just a, a, a couple of questions. If you've got any Jews here, if you're a Jewish, we we'll just ask you if you could just talk among yourselves for just a minute, because I want to speak to the Gentiles that are here. Let me let me just ask you a very serious question about the progress of history um, We've been trying to kill the Jews for a very long time and why haven't we done that? I mean of all the things that we could say that we have endeavored to do as Gentiles collectively We can certainly say with an absolute certainty. We have been trying to wipe the Jews off the planet and we have been unsuccessful and, and it's not for not trying Historically, we have plundered them, we have dispersed them, we have enslaved them, we have murdered them, we have decimated them, we have exiled them. And if you think their history is only this past century, you do not know much history. We've been doing this for thousands of years. In the process, as Gentiles, we've exterminated entire cultures and races. And yet, it seems like every time we turn around, the Jews are the same number they've always been. Not only are they just the same, they're in their own country. Kind of like starfish. You ever cut up a starfish? What happens? You just get more starfish. You, cut up the, you chop the Jews up, what happens? You just seem to get more Jews. Why is that? I think part of that answer is right here. Because when you're messing with them, you're messing with him, a chief. You're messing with the general of God's armies, and not just him, but all those who would come underneath him, all those with his, who come underneath his authority. And the reason why we can't get at them is because you can't get at them. And let me just say this in a commentary with regards to the Jews. The average Jew today, I don't know if you know this, is an agnostic. Did you know that? So it's not, not particularly an atheist. They're, they're shading toward that. But agnostic just simply means they believe there might be a God, but they don't think he's involved in anything. Because their, their life, in their opinion, they can't explain it that way. The average Jew today is an agnostic. Nevertheless, the existence of the Jew today is one of the best, one of the best answers to the existence of God. For instance, you tell me you don't believe in God, and I'm going to have to say to you, then explain to me the juice. I'm waiting. I'll, I'll be happy to listen to you. And I've never got a single person to explain to me. So we've been after them. We've been killing them. We've been burning them, torturing them, dispersing them, destroying them, ransacking their nation for thousands of years. And yet there's just as many as there always was. Explain that to me. If there isn't a God, that is. I got a good explanation if there is a God, but I got no explanation if there's not. So back to this guy, Michael, his name actually is a rhetorical question. His name means, there. who is like God? That's what the name Michael was, great name. It's a rhetorical question. Who is like God? So you've got this gigantic angel, if you will, standing up for Israel, whose name means, who is like God? The answer is, no one. Backing this powerful angel is the omnipotent, powerful God. And he has the special charge, the guardians of the Jews. And even not letting their bodies be desecrated, isn't that the wildest thing? So, so how, how, how critical, how, how detailed has his job been over the centuries of dealing with the Jews and their persecutions and their Holocaust that they've experienced over th- literally thousands of years? It's just boggles the mind you just can't imagine it but we are given at least in the scriptures some details of the battles that he has fought and will fight for them and i want to i want to show it to you this is revelation chapter 12 verses 1 through 9 and uh with some parts removed just because it doesn't all fit on the screen but i wanted to give you the bigger picture here revelation chapter 9 chapter 12 gives us some some pictures here of some things that are significant for us to understand and we're in daniel and i know this is rough stuff guys but um You know this isn't Sunday school stuff. I mean, this is not. This is very deep stuff. So just hang with me here. A great sign appeared in heaven. That's a large portion of what you can say about the whole Revelation. Sign after sign after sign after sign, and it's interpreting these signs. That's the that's the hard thing. A great sign. So this isn't a literal person. So we, we we're told at the beginning it's not a literal person. Yet so many interpret this as being Mary. Don't do that. Do what the Bible tells you to do. This is a sign. A sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So this is, and we don't have time to get into it, but this is a picture of Israel. These 12 stars. This crown, this clothed with, with the sun and the moon under her feet. And there are many references in the scriptures that teach us this. This is Israel. She was pregnant. It's not Mary. I'm not saying that Mary didn't give birth to Jesus. And I'm not saying that she wasn't a virgin. I'm not saying that none of that. I'm I'm just saying this is not a reference to her. It's a reference to the whole nation. The Jews who brought to birth this, this movement of God, the movement of God, which is the salvation of all of us, Jew and Gentile, through his son Jesus. They were the process that brought it about. And here's how it came about. She, this woman who's speaking of the Jews collectively, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And the dragon, who is he? He's Satan, just so you know, stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child at the moment he was born. Now, I don't recall reading anything in the New Testament of Jesus' birth scenario, either in Matthew or in Luke, that says the devil was trying to kill Jesus. But I do read, I do read that Herod sent out his troops to kill Every child below the age of two in Bethlehem, and in fact, that's exactly what he did. So could it be possible that, that Herod was controlled by Satan? I think that's a strong possibility. I think, I think if you don't think that's a possibility that you're not sleeping long enough um, Or you're eating too much pizza or something i don't know i'm thinking you're missing something there for sure because that's a pretty simple conclusion to me so 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 the the, but but in in the background or i should say maybe in the foreground of what's really going on here is this spiritual entity that we call the dragon here later on called satan who's trying to devour the child of course he doesn't succeed it goes on to say she gave birth to a son a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And this is from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is speaking of the Messiah who's going to rule, ultimately going to rule the whole world with this iron scepter, speaking of Jesus, of course. The woman, it says, fled into the wilderness. So we have fast forward here. So immediately this woman gives birth to this son, and then, and, this, and they're the Jews, right? And so she's immediately whisked away in the wilderness. Now to a Jew, if you say, well, now to an American, if I say the wilderness, where is that? Well, that can be west of here, can be north of here. In fact, South Padre Island is kind of a wilderness. If you had not looked around, there's nothing, you're not on the way to nothing here unless you're going to the Gulf of Mexico. It's a wilderness. To the Jews, wilderness is always east. It's always directional. It's always toward the mountains of the east, which include Edom and Moab and Saudi Arabia, honestly. It could be any of those places. The woman, notice, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Now that's interesting. You haven't read ahead in Daniel, but Daniel's been saying some kind of numbers over here. Look at Daniel 12, verse 11. and start with verse 10. Speaking of these end time events, it says, Many will be purged and purified and refined, and the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those... So I hope you understand this stuff. Anyway. But those who have insight will understand, and from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, that's the time in the temple, it has to be a temple in order for this to happen, sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation, Jesus referred to that. He says you need to know that. When you see that, you need to run, you need to head out to the wilderness. That's interesting. From that time to the time of until it, till it's all done effectively, he says there will be 1,290 days. Isn't that interesting? So that's 30 days difference from what, what uh, John says over here in the book of Revelation, so apparently the Jews are going to flee, and they're going to get a 30-day head start. That's the best way I can understand it. Then what it says, war broke out after all this. The Jews flee. They go away for three and a half. By the way, 1,260 days is exactly three and a half years to the day. It tells us the Antichrist is going to reign for seven years. You split seven and a half, how much do you get? Three and a half years. So three and a half, he's going to do this, and the other three and a half, he's going to do that. And the last three and a half, as I understand this, is when Israel's going to be gone, taken away, uh, and protected by God. It says, then war broke out in heaven, and Michael, there he is. I finally get into it. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Satan, it says, as a result of that war, was hurled to the earth, and his angels with them. This is yet to happen, guys. As I understand the scripture, Satan still has access. So this is end times, very end time events that Satan is hurled down. And some may differ with me, and and I may may differ with myself. Talk to me about five years about it, and I'll I'll tell you my conclusion. So this is a commentary, though, on Daniel 12, Daniel chapter 12. Let's get back to it. It's a commentary, all the things we've been reading here, and it gives us a clear understanding of what God has to say to the Jews over here in Ezekiel. Stick with me. Come on, we're going to get done here. Ezekiel chapter 20 As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will reign over you with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. God speaking to the Jews. So 99% of the Jews, not 99, 95% of the Jews today are agnostic, but not forever. I will reign over you. I will be your God. And you will be my people. And that's, that's what he's saying here. With outstretched arm and outpoured wrath, I will bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. Why? Because he's God, he can do what he wants to. I will bring you into the wilderness. Like I said, it's always directional. It's always east. Same thing it says in Daniel, same thing it says in Revelation. I will bring you to the wilderness of the nations there face to face and I will execute judgment upon you as I judge your ancestors in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, and he definitely did, so I will judge you, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will take note of you as, a, as you pass under my rod. That's very interesting. Statement of a shepherd. So you're out in the fields, a bunch of shepherds together, and all your flocks are out there. Of course, you know that, that sheep only follow the voice of their shepherd, but not all of them. I would say it's not 100%. So some sheep come through that not necessarily yours. So at the end of the day, you have this little chute that goes into the corral where you're keeping your sheep and every sheep that passes through, you drop a rod on them. In other words, that sheep is coming through, you drop a rod in front of his face and you check your sheep out. Is this my sheep? Does he have my brand? Does he, does he belong to me? Is, is this uh, is this sheep in good shape? Is he healthy? Does he have a scratch? Does he, is he sick? And so you would, does he need to be anointed with oil or whatever? So every sheep that passes through the chute, you drop the rod in front of them. Over and over until you get all your sheep in. And by the way, if you drop the rod in front of a sheep, you start looking at it and saying, "This isn't my sheep. This is, belongs to uh, Ohenu over there, or whatever." I don't know. You call him and say, "Listen, man, I've got your sheep. Come and get it." He would do the same thing with you. That's exactly what he's saying. Notice what he's how he's going to deal with Israel. You will pass under my rod, and I will bring you into the bond of a covenant. Specific, unique, one by one. He says. Not, there's not a collectiveness here. We say the, the nation of Israel. Yeah, the nation of Israel. God is interested in the individual. Us, notice what it says here in chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, every one who is written in the book, will be rescued. Every one. Sometimes we think that there's kind of a collective grace and there is over certain areas and certain peoples, it's nice to be a part of a good church, and I hope this continues to be a good church by God's grace, and it's great to be a part of a good church, but somehow we think we're caught up in the sweep of things. Well, there's good people in this church, that's why I'm a good person, it doesn't really matter how I live on a day-to-day basis, what matters is is that I'm with good people and that eventually things are going to get better for me, and and maybe that's so. I mean, it's good to be a part of good people and be encouraged and and, uh, be be, uh, held accountable by those people, but I would say this, God is very interested in the individual and how he lives the individual and how he thinks the individual and his position with him god is very interested in the individual he's going to drop the rod on every last one of us notice everyone everyone who is found written in the book he says will be rescued they'll be mine so so is god keeping records apparently so Malachi, consider, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Really? God has books? Apparently. For those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name, and they will be mine, he says, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I spare them as a man spares his own son and preserves him. So, wow, God keeps records? Written records? Yeah, of all kinds of stuff. Look at this. Psalm 56. "You have taken account of my wanderings," the writer says. "Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So God records God records tears. What else is he recording? I, I would suggest to you everything. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus speaks of the smallest things that we could do for the sake of those who belong to him. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, he says, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose his reward. So he's keeping account of this. He's got like a ledger on you and on me. Seems seems to say that, does it not? Seems to fall that way. So is God still doing this? Notice what Jesus says about his disciples who had gone out and prophesied and done all these things on his behalf. They came back in rejoicing that the demons had submitted to them. And notice what Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are, written, notice carefully, written in the book of life. They're written there. God's keeping a ledger? Seems to say that. Revelation thirteen eight: Everyone whose name was not written, this is the other side of that from the foundation of the world. So this isn't just a New Testament thing. It's not a Daniel on thing. It's from a forever position, if you will, and from eternity all the way through to eternity. God's got a book called the Lamb Book, the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Revelation twenty fifteen tells us the final destination of those who are not, underline it carefully, in the book. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow, that's just pretty clear, isn't it? So I guess, I guess our goal ought to be, whatever it is, how, however we get there, that our names be in that book. I mean, of all the books you want to be in, of all the lists you want to be on, you want to make sure you're on this list because apparently to not be on this is a super bad thing. Super bad. There was a man who went and picked up his daughter in vacation Bible school one evening, and they were headed back to home on a Friday evening, and the little girl said, as soon as she got in the car, she said, Dad, we need to go to the library you go to the library. He says, sweetie, the library is closed. It won't be open until Monday, but I'll take you on Monday. No. Call whoever owns the library, she says. I have to go to the library. He says, "What's, what's the big hurry? He says, the teacher told us that Jesus has a book and that in that book are all the names of those who are going to heaven, and I want to check it out, she says, and make sure that my name is written there. Now, how innocent and naive is that at the same time? How, how, pretty much on is she of all the places you want to make sure your name is it's definitely in that book and by the way it doesn't get there there's nothing in the book but names as far as i can tell anywhere in the scriptures just names just names of those who belong to him just names not not anything that they've done good or bad not in there just those who belong to him only names how do we get in that book Well, the scripture tells us that Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm it. Only Jesus. You want your name in the book? I hope you do. I really hope that you're as smart as this little girl and desire to have your name there. But I'm telling you, there's only one way that 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 can happen. And that is by placing your faith in God's son, Jesus. There is no other way. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm it, Jesus says. There's no other way but me. It should matter to us. It should matter to you, the names in that book. It should matter to you how we get our names in that book. It should matter to you that it's a lot more than just being religious and it's a lot more than just being a good person. It's a lot more than coming to church. I can't see what that says anything about that in this book. It just says whether your name is there. Does Jesus is the Savior, as we said to these kids, but he's a your Savior. See, that's the best, that's the only question. Is he your savior? Do you know him personally as savior? I'm gonna ask if you would bow your heads and close your eyes. I appreciate your patience. I know we've been through a lot in here and it's a lot to take in. But if anything we need to take away from here it certainly is the same thing that this little girl took away. The most important thing is that God's got a book. God's got a book. And whether or not we're in that book is bottom line the only thing that ultimately matters. Let's pray together. I want to ask you with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, can you say, honestly, I'm in that book? I'm saying that to say not how strongly you feel about it. I'm saying, where, where are you with this whole Jesus thing? Scripture says, he who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It says, as to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. You call yourself a child of God, and yet you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior? I think you've got a problem. I think you need to look carefully. I think you need to think more clearly. Do I know Jesus to be the savior or do I know him to be my savior? Scripture says all that who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Have you called upon him to save you to, to rescue you? you? Say no I haven't done that. Well then you got something you need to do. You have something you need to be taken needs to be taken care of. God's got a book. And in it are only names of those who actually belong to him. Not those who sincerely believe that they do, but instead those who actually do. God, I thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, because you've got a book. And your desire is that we all be in that book. Your desire, God, your desire is that not one sinner should perish, but that all should come to repentance that they would all turn in faith to your son, Jesus. And I pray for the person here who has never done that today. I pray that he or she, her heart would change today. His heart would change today. Standing in the the awesomeness of your word as we see all these things that are going to be taking place in the future, all these uh, powerful things that our eyes can't see that are taking place in, in the spiritual realm. Lord, I pray that our hearts would fall under a conviction. We cry out to you, God, and say, Rescue me, save me. Jesus, be my Savior. We would trust you today, God, if we haven't already. Thank you so much, God, again, for teaching us. Thank you for the depth and the richness of your word. And I pray that we would grow by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.